0: Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all this morning. My name is Ben. I'm the missions pastor here at LCF. And I want to ask you a question this morning. Who is your hero? My movie heroes generally lean towards real-life stories like major winners from Band of Brothers or maybe a Hollywoodized legend like William Wallace. That said, I would also really like to have an Iron Man suit. Science fiction writer Jack McDevitt said, Show me what a people admire, and I will tell you everything about them that matters. Our heroes can define how we look at success, how we would define glory, how we would define greatness, even hope. A hero may not even be some renowned person or somebody from the Avengers, but maybe it's someone that we look up to that seems like they really have their life together seamlessly. So who is your hero? What are they like? What does that say about your definition of glory, your definition of success, your definition of greatness? I want you to keep those questions in mind and let's turn to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. We're gonna read through the whole chapter. We're gonna pray for grace for me to get through this chapter. Genesis chapter 10 verse 1 says this, these are the family records of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They also had sons after the flood. Japheth's sons, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tirash. Gomer's sons, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Tagormah. And Javan's sons, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these descendants, the peoples of the coasts and islands spread out into their lands, according to their clans in their nations, each with its own language. Verse six: Ham's sons: Cush, Mizraim, Put, Canaan; Cush's sons: Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabdica, and Rama's sons: Sheba and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod, who began to be powerful in the land. He was a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. <clears throat> That's why it is said, like Nimrod, a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. His kingdom started with Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and the great city, Kala. Mizraim fathered the people of Lud, Anam, Lachab, Napta, Pathras, Kasla, the Philistines came from then, and Kaftor. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, as well as the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Arkites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, and the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the Canaanite clans scattered. The Canaanite border went from Sidon, going to Gerar, as far as Gaza, and going toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are Ham's sons by their clans, according to their languages, in their lands, and their nations. Stay with me, y'all. Verse 21 And Shem, Japheth's older brother, also had sons. Shem was the father of all the sons of Eber. Shem's sons were Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. Aram's son sons, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. Eber had two sons. One was named Peleg, for during his days the earth was divided. His brother was named Joktan, and Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelef, Hazarmaveth, Jerah, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were Joktan's sons. Their settlements extended from Mesha to Sefer, the eastern hill country. These are Shem's sons by their clans, according to their languages in their lands and their nations. These are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their family records in their nations. The nations on earth spread out from these after the flood. Wow. Okay. If your neighbor fell asleep after that, wake them up. Okay. Thank you. Take a sip of coffee. Click the refresh button on your attention after all of that. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. So we need to remember that this is theology. This is not an Ancestry.com for the curious mind. This is not about about us accumulating Bible facts for a future quiz. This is theological intent. And theology is, is to lead us to faith in and love for Jesus. This genealogy continues to develop three important themes that are running through the book of Genesis that we've already picked up on. And we're going to go through those three important themes here. Number one, humanity's rebellion. The saga continues. The number seven is often used in the Bible as a number representing completion or fulfillment. And we know this from the seven days of creation and how the Hebrews would use that number. Our genealogy utilizes that to bring theology to the forefront. So Japheth had seven sons recorded, and then he had seven grandsons recorded. But those, two, those seven grandsons were only from two sons, Gomer and Javan. So this was clearly not all the grandsons of Japheth, but a representative quantity that showed a completion so when we get to Ham's line in verse 6, we would expect the same thing. There would be a representative quantity numbering seven or or two sevens. But only four sons are listed from Ham. Now this should start to get our attention. Then through Cush, we read of five grandsons and two great-grandsons. Okay, well, we're back to seven, so maybe there's really nothing noteworthy there. And then verse 8, have a look. Kush fathered Nimrod. Was Nimrod a surprise baby? Like we already finished talking about Kush's sons and went on to his grandsons. Maybe there was like a 10-year gap between Saptica and Nimrod. The genealogy maybe was already written and Kush's wife approached him and said, honey, I know we already have two grandkids, but I got some news for you. No, that's not the case. The writer of this narrative is intentional of skipping Nimrod at the start and putting him now in verse eight. It's drawing our attention. What is it about this guy? So Cush fathered Nimrod, who began to be powerful in the land. He was a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. That's why it is said like Nimrod, a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. Now, this may sound good and exciting, especially for those of you who are looking forward to the upcoming deer season but this is not a celebratory statement. It's actually an infamous statement. Nimrod is a rebel king. The word for powerful here is a Hebrew word, gibor. It's also used in Genesis chapter 6 to talk about the mighty one. Some translations will say the heroes of old. It's also used to talk about David's mighty men, the giborim. So it's not necessarily negative, inherently negative, We also see that Nimrod was a conquering king. If we look at verse 10 and 11, we read that he established kingdoms, many kingdoms. And conquering kings in the ancient Near East were often affiliated with their hunting ability, which makes sense. You're a good hunter. You're going to be good on the battlefield. That's an easy correlation. But still, it's not necessarily that that statement is an evil or negative one. So how do we label Nimrod as a villain king? The name Nimrod in Hebrew means we rebel or let us revolt. To reinforce this designation next week when we talk about the Tower of Babel, we're going to see that in the land of Shinar, which is the land that Nimrod settled, there's going to be judgment from the Lord upon the people there. This picture now that we get of Nimrod as this, this villain king, this rebel king, we see that he was a mighty man who used his power to conquer other image bearers. He was setting himself up as ruler, not setting up God as ruler. And he did so in the sight of the Lord, which we see that phrase in Hebrew, before the face of the Lord. It's, it's when that child knows the boundary, and they, they were told, like, don't touch that. And they're like... And you know that they're doing it deliberately. This is the picture that we have here. In the face of the Lord, he conquers image bearers. He sets up his own rule and his own reign. It's a direct assault on the king of kings. The one who created Nimrod, who created all humans to flourish under God's kingship under his glorious presence, to walk with him and receive his love and love him in return. Nimrod is not a new type of character in Genesis. He just shows the continuous nature of the human heart. The heart of humanity, apart from Christ and apart from common grace, is anti-God. It's anti-rest. This is not exclusive to Nimrod it is in all of us. We're all Nimrods. I couldn't help myself when I was writing the sermon. <laughs> ben, that's ridiculous. No, that's biblical. In divine providence, our English vernacular defines Nimrod as a fool or somebody who's inept. And so Romans 1 verse 21 through 23 diagnoses both the rebellion and the foolishness of humanity together. It says... For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. The foolishness and rebelliousness of humanity is set forth in these words. Apart from Jesus, the Bible tells us that we are enemies of God, Romans 5, verse 10. That we are sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2, verse 2. That we are a wicked generation, Acts 2, verse 40. Apart from Christ, we don't love God, we don't submit to God, we don't thank God, we don't trust God or desire for his glory to be made known. We seek our own flourishing. And we've used that word throughout this series. We seek our own flourishing by our definition of flourishing, not God's definition of flourishing. And often we do that at the expense of other image bearers flourishing. We have clear evidence that God exists, and this makes our sin all the more culpable, according to Romans chapter 1. Almost every sermon in this series has been expounding on the seriousness of humanity's rebellion. Don't get tired of that. Don't get tired of reminding yourself of who you are apart from Christ. Paul does this in every one of his letters. Your heart needs that reminder. That truth sobers us it humbles us it brings truth into our heart but that isn't the whole truth and so number two God's grace the saga continues the context of our passage helps to bring God's grace to the forefront in the midst of this large cloud of names where do we see God's grace in this Where is the return to flourishing that God promised in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent crusher, the return to the garden, the return to blessing? Well, our context, Genesis chapter 9, verse 26, leads us to consider the line of Shem. It says, chapter 9, verse 26, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. That blessing is from the Lord through the line of Shem. So will Shem be the promised serpent crusher? Will he be the one to return humanity back to the garden? Genesis 10, 21 also departs from the normal pattern that Japheth's line started as we look at the line of Shem. It says this, if you look at verse 21. And Shem, Japheth's older brother, also had sons. Shem was the father of all the sons of Eber. Now pause. That's already a break in the pattern that we had. So we want to know why is the narrator highlighting the sons of Eber already? Who is Eber besides being a movie critic? Just kidding, that's Eber. That's. And so why is there a focus on him? Verse 22, Shem's sons were Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. Still no Eber. Verse 23, Aram's sons, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash, the originator of our childhood game. Still no Eber. Some of you maybe played Mash. Verse 24, our Pakshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. Okay, finally, we're at the place that our, our narrator wants us to look at. Eber had two sons. One was named Peleg, for during his days the earth was divided, and his brother was named Joktan. But then the rest of the line is only Joktan's sons as we read on. It's like Peleg was forgotten. So why did the, narrat- the narrator emphasize the lineage of Eber in, in the opening of Shem's line, only to only track through one of his sons when he said there was two of his sons? Well, Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, wrote in verse 25 that the earth was divided in Peleg's day. and The Hebrew for divided and the name Peleg sound very similar. It's a play on words. This is pointing us to a division in the family tree that will be picked up again in Genesis chapter 11. It is the line of Peleg through which our new hero is going to come. In fact, it's not Shem that is going to be the hero of the story. God will restore humanity to the place of blessing through the line of Noah and now through the line of Peleg. Not to ruin the Genesis series for you, because there's 50 chapters here, but the hero is not going to surface in the book of Genesis. Instead, there's a Gabor to come, a mighty man to come. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 89, and we're going to read verse 19 through 29. Psalm 89 Verse nineteen through twenty-nine. <clears throat> it says this, <clears throat> verse nineteen. You once spoke in a vision to your faithful ones, and said, I have granted help to a warrior. That's the Hebrew word, gibor. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. I have anointed him with my sacred oil. My hand will always be with him, and my arm will strengthen him. The enemy will not oppress him. The wicked will not afflict him. I will crush his foes before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and love will be with him, and through my name his horn will be exalted. I will extend his power to the sea and his right hand to the rivers. He will call to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. I will also make him my firstborn, the greatest of the kings of the earth. I will always preserve my faithful love for him and my covenant with him will endure. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as heaven lasts. Psalm 89 tells us of a Davidic king, someone from the line of David who is going to sit on the throne of David. He will be a warrior king, a gibbor, a king to establish God's name and God's kingdom. You don't have to turn here, but Isaiah 9 picks this up as well, and it's a very familiar passage that we read at Christmas. It says this, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. That's Gibor El. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it. With justice and righteousness from now on and forever, the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. God's grace in our passage, it's a coming one. We're always looking in the book of Genesis towards God fulfilling his promise to bless, to return humanity to the garden, and we're awaiting this one. We're awaiting this mighty one that will do that. There's a coming warrior king of the line of Shem, of the line of Peleg, who will establish the king of the Lord in the light of the countenance, in the light of the face of his God and his father. This warrior king named Jesus, he came in his first arrival as a meek servant. And he conquered the rebellion in our hearts. He brought us back to the place of blessing from establishing our own kingdoms to now loving him and seeking to establish his. So return to the place of blessing in Jesus, the warrior king. Is he the hero of your story? Now we have noted the themes of sin, of grace, and there's one other item I want to draw out of this narrative, and it's about God's kingdom, the saga finished Tim has said that he can bring most things back to Disney. For me, it's the Lord of the Rings. At the beginning of the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings, Bilbo is hosting a a birthday party, and he has a special reception for a select number of people that came to the party. It's a party within a party. You'd feel kind of left out if you were on the outside of that, wouldn't you? And he gives a speech, and he says that he brought these people together for three purposes. Welcome to story time. Secondly, I brought you together to celebrate my birthday. Cheers again. I should say our birthday. For it is, of course, also the birthday of my heir and nephew, Frodo. He comes of age and into his inheritance today. Some perfunctory clapping by the elders and some loud shouts of, Frodo, Frodo, jolly old Frodo, from the juniors. The Sackville-Bagginses scowled and wonder what was meant by coming into his inheritance. Together, we score 144. Your numbers were chosen to fit, f- to fit this remarkable total. One gross, if I may use the expression. No cheers. This was ridiculous. Many of the guests, and especially the Sackville Bagginses, were insulted, feeling sure that they had only been asked to fill up the required number. Like goods in a package, one gross indeed, vulgar expression quite a random excerpt. In our culture, we really don't have a lot of significance surrounding numbers. And so when we talked at the beginning of the number seven as completion, um, we don't have a lot of those things within our culture. Here, we have Bilbo hosting a party and the combined ages of Bilbo and Frodo is 144. So he chose 144 guests to represent that number, insulting to many of his guests. But he seemed to do it maybe to fill it up, to make sure that This was made known. And the same is here in our passage. As we work through our genealogy and work through Shem, there's really a random number of grandsons at the end. And it seems like there's the intention of needing to fill up the entire genealogy, and we land with the number 70. A total of 70. Now, in Hebraic culture, the number 7 and the number 10 are both numbers of completion. So we multiply them together. We're kind of seeing, well... Like, why is this number significant in this passage? Turn with me to Genesis forty six twenty seven. Genesis forty six twenty seven says this All those of Jacob's household who came to Egypt, 70 persons. If we fast forward to Exodus 1 5, it says, The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. If Moses is the narrator, he is the writer of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, he's writing this for the Israelites. He names 70 descendants of Noah as this representative total of all the people that came from Noah, really all the people of the earth. And this representative total is the same number as Jacob's descendants when they came to Egypt. And this is the family that would be a blessing to the nations. That's not a coincidence. So if we look at 70 names here, we see the scope of God's blessing. His desire is to bless all the people's Of the earth, all the peoples of the earth. While the 70 names here are a drudgery to work through, trust me on that. They are the desire of God's heart. Though they continue to rebel, He continues to pursue. Every one of those names is pronounced correctly by God. I guarantee it, because I flubbed probably every one of them. But he knows every one of them, and there is intention for him to name every one of them. Humanity is the object. All of humanity is the object of his affection. It's the object of his redemption, and he desires to bring blessing to the nations. We talk about unreached people groups around here, Those are people that do not have access to the gospel. Meaning there's no believers or not enough believers in a particular group to be able to share the gospel with everybody. And we categorize people groups and define them beyond their national identity. So for example, China has hundreds of people groups. These are distinctions separating people geographically, linguistically, culturally, and religiously. In our passage, the sons of Noah are thus divided by means of anthropological, linguistic, political, and geographical criteria. It says in verse 31, These are Shem's sons by their clans, according to their languages, in their lands and their nations. That's every possible category of people groups. God already, in Genesis chapter 10, is setting up his story. That it's not this, Okay, we're going to try to bring the gospel to the nation of America. It's, there is small, geographic, linguistically centered people groups that he has his eye on. That he wants to save them. It's to take us from a 30,000 foot view and say God cares about him, her, 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 him, him, them, them, them. Like everybody Every facet of what it means to be a people group is located within our passage. With it being the number 70, we see God's overwhelming desire to pursue all of humanity and bring them all into his kingdom. Every human being matters to Jesus, whether they submit or whether they rebel. So do you share the heart of our hero? Do you share the heart of our hero? The saga is not over because the gospel has yet to be declared to all people groups. Jesus has yet to return. And so though it says the saga finished, we're awaiting that finish, meaning there's things to do now. Our mission at LCF is to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And some of the defining characteristics uh, of this, are that we would be gospel centered, that we'd be humbly unified, that we'd be mission driven, that we would be pursuing holiness, that we would be disciple making, that we would be English Premier League soccer fans. That last one is still pending approval by the leadership team. But we see all of these facets in the life of Jesus. He is the gospel. He is the servant leader who brings Jew and Gentile together. He is the one the sent one by the Father. He is the holy one of God, and he's the one to call disciples and make disciples through us. So we are about reflecting Jesus as the church. These characteristics result from encountering Jesus. They don't make us Christians. They grow because we're Christians. So we might consider some of these characteristics as optional. Missions might be seen as optional. Or maybe an occasional part of our walk with God. And I get that. It's easy in our culture and even in our church to see trips are for youth groups. Going to the nations is for the missionaries. Sharing the gospel is for the annoyingly super spiritual. But we who have the spirit of Christ are to reflect the image of our savior, to have the heart of our hero. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. None of these places are optional. We're called to be involved in all of them. There's a local component to this, the Jerusalem and Judea. There's a cross-cultural and a global component to this, Samaria and the ends of the earth. But this is not optional for us. If we have the spirit of Christ within us, the heart of Christ, his desire to save, if we've been recipients of the gospel, let that grow from the inside out. I want to focus on the global component of that command from Jesus. We are called by Jesus to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. I want to invite the worship team to come forward. Would you consider going? And why not? Would you consider sending missionaries, financially sacrificing and sending missionaries? Why not? Would you consider laboring in the place of prayer, partnering with our great intercessor for the nations to be given to him? Why not? Would you consider welcoming the unreached from the nations to Kansas City? Well, why not? Would you consider awakening others to God's heart for the nations? Why not? These are costly questions. This is truly a life laid down before our warrior king to say, I want your heart. I want to walk in your glory, not my culture's glory. Listen, my passion is not missions. Hear that again. My passion is not missions. My passion is Jesus. He's the one to do that. We need a savior to transform our hearts into his. That's what we need. My passion for unreached people groups, ebbs and flows. I think about my lawn that probably hasn't been cut in three weeks. That comes and goes. But Jesus is faithful to stir our affections for what his affections are on. He's faithful to do that. Are we willing to engage with him on that? To have continual reminders before us, to lead us in the place of mobilization and partnership and sending and going and praying. Will we engage with the heart of our hero? because he sought you out. You've heard the gospel. He saved you. His affections are on you. So let's stand in worship and gaze upon the glory of our king in worship together.